Am I doing the in, in, the intro this week? <laughs> yeah, I guess you are. <laughs> <laughs> if you volunteered yourself. Just stick being silent, I guess, is the win. Next time, I guess we're going to be waiting for like five minutes before someone speaks. It's the price of being late. Alright everyone, welcome to the OSIM Bunker Podcast here with John from Defense Geek, uh, Jordan from Intel Air and C, Kyle from, of course, Kyle Glenn on Twitter. Um, we also have Israel Radar this week, who um, is responsible for covering some of the best stuff I've seen um, on ADSB, and we will probably be talking to him a lot about everything ADSB related. Um, and of course, in partnership with UK Defense Journal, I think we should probably just get started into the week. Where are we going to start in the week? Uh, <laughs> I don't have a list up. <laughs> it's, it's been a couple of weeks since um, our last episode um, went live. Um, that's kind of been sort of a bit of a... We decided to try and take a bit of a break. Um, we've been sort of recording the podcast now non-stop for about six months. Um, and it kind of made sense as well to sort of spread some of the episodes out a little bit more. Um, we're switching yeah. our schedule up and we were too lazy to do an extra episode. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, so it's been about three weeks since we had our last episode, um, but hopefully that means we've got plenty to talk about this week. Absolutely. And um, honestly, we should probably just start off with, I think what would be the biggest news over the past two weeks um, which would be the, um, of course, hypersonic missile arms race currently ongoing. Um, one that, at least from my point of view, definitely could be sort of seen as Russia being a clear first place right now um, in developing that technology. And then probably the Chinese and the U.S. sort of trading blows in whoever can um, sort of get a higher level or a, a a potential hypersonic glide vehicle weapon into service quicker i know china tested one utilizing a fractional orbital bombardment system um which is definitely i mean the system has existed for a while since the 1960s when the russians developed it um sergey korolev you know father of the russian space program thought it would be a great idea um because it would allow the russians to hit the u.s from the south going you know over the south pole um so it was just something that could evade u.s early warning radars um and eventually the u.s and russia came to a treaty that they wouldn't place nuclear weapons or correction weapons of mass destruction in space um which sort of cut out the fractional orbital bombardment system china is not a party to that agreement so of course they can test stuff like that um the real question though and the real um sort of million dollar question here is whether or not they have a hypersonic glide vehicle um that can be usable um which is just super dangerous obviously obviously it's something that causes a lot of issues for current missile defense systems um screws with early warning radars and is just much harder to detect and intercept yeah no it's definitely interesting i i mean i was personally surprised that it had been you know tested since like the 1960s you know when, when you read about like the uh the test and like the capabilities of the weapon, it it still seems almost futuristic, doesn't it? <laughs> That's something like this. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the exists. end of the day, it's it's really simple. It's just putting something in lower low Earth orbit and then dropping it on a target when you get to the end. I mean, I mean, it sounds simple when you put it that way. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Anything sounds simple when you put it like that. Um, 
But I mean, I, I found like you know, I was reading a couple of articles about it. There was, you know, it, it seems that the most surprising thing isn't that you know this technology exists. It's that no one really expected that China had the capabilities to develop and then test this kind of weapon. And I think that's what's kind of taken the U.S. by surprise out of everything. Yeah, and the hypersonic systems that we're seeing sort of come into service. Obviously, the U.S. had a failed test of what was presumed to be. Um, a hypersonic glide vehicle, which um, the which we weren't aware of existed, um, which is definitely something, you know, uh, <laughs> hey, I guess that was sort of announced with the failures that the U.S. is um, at the point where it's testing a hypersonic glide vehicle. Um, but again, it's just one of these situations where all it's doing is reducing the amount of warning time, the amount of... Um, uh, uh, preparation and the amount of possible, you know, time to think out a potential nuclear response um, to any sort of potential nuclear attack. Now, the issue with that is if there's a false alarm or if, you know, both sides are extremely uh, cautious. Um, so reducing the warning time is always a risky thing just because it puts both sides more on edge, especially as the U.S. and China continue to... Um, ramp up the tensions between the two sides um it's just one of those risky things that obviously you know it goes against all the principles of nuclear non-proliferation and um at, at the end of the day it's it's just a risk to everyone um yeah so the the, the article i was reading here um it's quite a weird headline it says it says the te tech def appear to defy the laws of physics which I've got no idea. I've tried reading through this article to see exactly what they did that apparently defied the laws of physics. Um, I'm guessing it's a regular journalist journalist writing about defense stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, that defies the laws of physics. <laughs> um, but it seems like you know, like China obviously they've they've completely denied that it is what um, you know everyone's saying it is. They say that they test like a reusable space vehicle. Um, which, you know, compared to all of the you know, recent uh, excuses of use, is quite a plausible one, I suppose, <laughs> considering for what you know what the what the test did. Um, but the test itself, well, didn't fail as such. But the the missile missed the target, didn't it? By quite a, by not a small margin, which um, it says you're about forty kilometers. Which I suppose if it's you I mean, know, a nuclear with nuclear weapon, with nuclear <laughs> yeah. weapons, they're sort of the principle of close enough. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like forty kilometers, it's it's probably close enough. But I mean, if it's you know a, a you know non-nuclear warhead, then you know it's quite a big. Oh, mix. that doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's definitely um, definitely interesting to see what we definitely do seem to be in a kind of a new kind of space race, space weapons race, almost. Um, which is you know, nuclear arms race. Let's let's call it what it is. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, it, the previous one led to a lot of cool tech anyway, just, you know, outside of military applications. So, you know, it, it could be good for us, a new kind of arms race. Yeah, you know, just the potential downsides are sort of, you know, limitless. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very true. I, I think it's interesting as well that we're seeing sort of the main um, aims for the US and China are these hypersonic glide vehicles, as you, uh, as you mentioned. Because... And North Korea. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's worth saying that Russia's sort of hypersonic weapons at the moment, the ones that they've already tested and that they are uh, pretty much as we speak trying to roll out onto 
uh, launch platforms, particularly some of their sort of frigates um, operating near Syria. They are very much your sort of hypersonic cruise missiles rather than sort of glide vehicles. So again, they've got a slightly different uh, method of sort of travel. Um, and I, I, I was just remembering again today that, you know, as far back as 2011, the UK and France were actually looking at their own hypersonic cruise missile. Um, it was back then, it was called the uh, CVS 401 Persus. Um, I think now it's still called the, the Future Cruise Anti-Ship Weapon. Um, but that's a project we've not really heard much about since they announced it. Um, that's because UK defence procurement is an absolute car crash. Yeah, the, oh, there is, there is that. that. <laughs> there is that, but it, it, it kind of makes you wonder as well, because obviously the US projects... Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. It's the... the AGM 183 ARW. Yes, that's the one. Um, that's kind of almost come out of nowhere in the last few years, hasn't it? Um, well, and they're sort of um, being more and more public about, you know. I mean, I think for the first time we actually saw photos and videos of it this year um, being carried by test aircraft. Uh that was 2019, actually. Oh, was it? I know. I'm I'm shocked. It, it was. The the first dummy round I think was uh, 2019 being carried on a B52. Right. Um. I I mean, uh, the the thing about the AGM 183 is that it it from what people have said, it's much shorter range, um, and is more something akin to, um, I don't know the uh shoot uh the AGM 28 Hound Dog. Um, which was a basically just a really really large um, the nuclear missile um, that would be fired by uh, B-52s in order to remain you know have some standoff distance from their target. Um, I think uh, that's sort of what that platform is more going for. Um, just that sort of standoff weapon that can defeat current missile defense systems. Um, I think we've basically come to a level where Russia is focusing on, um, with their hypersonics, a combination of things, which is long-range nuclear deterrence. Um, so, you know, refitting their current um, land-based silos and maybe submarine-launched ballistic missiles with hypersonic glide vehicles and other hypersonic cruise missiles. Um, and then also integrating hypersonics into their current um, uh, sort of fleet doctrine, which more relies on... Um, uh, utilizing heavily armed cruisers and destroyers um, to counter uh, U.S. Um, fleets. So, you know, that would be either putting them on uh, backfires in order to target um, uh, U.S. carrier battle groups or putting them on, you know, whatever surface action um, groups they have. Just sort of, you know, continuing with that current um, uh, sort of, I guess, doctrine that they have that sort of, you know, uh, not as much focused around carrier battle groups, but um, land, both land-based and sea-based assets um, to launch uh, long-range standoff missiles. Um, and then China, from what I've seen, is probably going towards more of a in-theater approach, apart from their fractional orbital bombardment system, which probably is meant to defeat or is meant to sort of augment their um, land-based silos. They don't actually have that many weapons, probably about right now 500 
um, more strategic nuclear weapons because their policy is limited strategic deterrence, which is basically the minimum number of nuclear weapons they need to, you know, have deterrence, um, which is why they're so threatened by the U.S.'s current um, uh, anti-ballistic missile system, which they believe, you know, might neg might negate their actual uh, deterrence. So they might be looking at a combination of in-theater hypersonic vehicles to counter um, U.S. in-theater uh, ballistic missile defense in Guam and in, um, you know, the first island chain. Um, and then, of course, that second level of system in order to counter um, whatever U.S. anti-ballistic missile systems uh, on this more strategic scale. Um, and then, of course, the U.S. is sort of this in, in this position where um, it doesn't really have doctrinal use for hypersonics right now, which I think is why they've been um, sort of ignored. And there's been a lot more focus on, of course, you know, anti-ballistic missile systems and um, more defensive stuff, long-range um, stealthy cruise missiles. Um, there just hasn't been the same focus in the U.S. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of a logical progression, particularly for the Russians, um, especially when we're thinking of, of the naval theater, as you mentioned, because they've, up until now, most of their ships have been armed with variants of the caliber cruise missile. And depending on the variant, that's anything from subsonic to supersonic. Um, and that's obviously where they're primarily looking, and, and they've been testing the, um, the avant-garde, I believe they call it, um, hypersonic missile. And there's talk that they are planning to utilize that weapon for uh, land attack strikes um, in support of sort of their their op operations in Syria and so on. Um, I feel like, uh, as as you mentioned, the U.S. doesn't really have any sort of doctrinal um, sort of process for the use of of, of hypersonics at the moment. Um, it's come out of you know, however many wars in recent years, we're, we're thinking Afghanistan, we're thinking Iraq, where the targets have been not exactly things that relocate at high speed. You know, we're, we're talking bunkers and caves and, you know, the the, the odd pickup truck here and there. Um, I was going to say Hiluxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so... And, and and I feel like that's probably also the same in that regard for France and the UK, and that's probably why we haven't seen much as well from from them in terms of joining the arms race or or at least any public announcement that they're interested in hypersonic weapons. Um, like you mentioned, though, China very much has a, a doctrinal reason for them, and and I'm I'm waiting to see sort of a. A development for specific anti-ship hypersonic weapons from them because their whole uh, battle strategy is for a high-speed missile strike against US carrier battle groups that would threaten sort of as you mentioned the first island chain and closer um, well that's what they're um, developing at the moment isn't it China they're um, their air launched uh, ballistic missile which I was reading earlier, they're expecting it to be in, you know, operational by uh, 2025. Um, and it just looks absolutely ridiculous. You know, this like this massive ballistic missile, which you're just going to drop out of their, um, out of their bombers. Um, and it's, you know, it's got a range of up to like four and a half thousand kilometers. Um, 
you know, it would be obviously designed to like hit like airfields and uh, aircraft carriers and stuff like that. Um, and it just seems like such overkill to, to need to drop something like that out of an aircraft, like, you know, for a conventional weapon. Obviously, it said it can be, you know, like they are nuclear, nuclear capable, but conventional weapon just seems absolutely ridiculous. And I think that. I mean, I, I'm personally of the belief that there's going to be some kind of confrontation with China before 2025. Uh, I, I mean, I'm no expert, of course, but just the way seem, things seem to be going, I don't think it's going to take that long. Um, and I, obviously, it might be, you know, in the US's benefit, maybe if they are going to force a confrontation to do it before they start getting these, what they call, you know, carrier killer missiles um, operational. Um Again, I'm sure if there was, you know, a conflict which broke out in the next couple of weeks, I'm sure they have a couple ready they could just use. But um, obviously, they're not planned to be capable until until 2025. Um, but yeah, it, it it does seem to be that's the way China is going in that they that's the kind of weapons they're developing at the moment. And I think we're seeing a shift as well in all all, all sort of the the larger nations are starting to realise that ballistic missiles might not actually be the best deterrent moving forward because uh, as we've kind of already alluded to the, the the whole point of a ballistic missile is is the arc uh, in the path that it, it sort of goes up into space and then comes down and that does actually mean that it's it's detectable um there's a growing number of nations who have the ability to track ballistic missiles um whether that be through the u.s uh, aegis combat system being on a variety of warships um, or sort of even ground-based radars in the UK, US uh, and elsewhere. Um, and the thing with, with hypersonic weapons is that they don't necessarily follow that same flight path. Um, hypersonic cruise missiles could be sea skimming. Um, and so at, at the same time we're seeing a lot of these nations very much sort of looking to space and to enhancing their sort of surveillance capabilities in space and i think part of the reason for that is because ultimately the only way they're going to be able to track these kinds of weapons from longer ranges beyond the horizon is through some sort of look down capability and obviously aircraft can't provide the kind of endurance that is needed for that mission and so they're looking to things like satellites no, definitely. Yeah. wasn't Russia developing like a nuclear torpedo at one point, or still are developing yeah. Yeah, yeah. like a nuclear torpedo? Hmm. Yes. Um. There. Uh. Shoot. Why am I forgetting the name of it? Um. Poseidon, it's incredibly. It? Yep. Yeah, uh. Yeah. Poseidon. Incredibly large. Um. Very. Uh. uh 20, not 20 definitely not a first strike weapon. Yeah. No. But again, that's that's something that potentially you won't be able to detect on on the ground or on, on, on the surface, but a satellite looking down from space might be able to spot the um, the telltale wake underwater from that. Um... Well, no, it's just loud. <laughs> it's really, really loud. Um, it's something that even the most rudimentary hydrophones could detect, um, classify and track, and it doesn't move that quickly. Um it's, I mean, it, its risk is a second strike weapon that's very, very hard to counter. Um, and that's definitely a, um, a, 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 not as dangerous per se as, um, as something like a hypersonic glide vehicle that we've seen both Russia and, you know, potentially China at this point developing. Um, 
it just it's it's by the time it actually would be launched a, a nuclear war would have already started so um it's it's sort of it's not one of those risk factors that people are concerned about it's it's, um, it's an end, it's an end game weapon it's something that you fire when it's when it's already over really yeah it it's just it it's not something that really we should be <laughs> if you're concerned about it it's probably the wrong thing to be concerned about um just because if if it were to ever be detonated well there would be you know some issues beforehand that would probably happen um so it's just it's it, it's something less to think about on the grand scale it, it's just you know it's something that I don't know. I think people will make a big issue of it where it's it's just I I really don't know how to say basically it's not something to worry about. Like that that's all I can say. It's undoubt it's undoubtedly a threat, but at the same time that threat's not that threat is not going to be re realized because bigger threats are going to happen before that happens. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to put it like more other weapons are going to be fired before that weapon gets fired. There's only so much you can say about it. Um, and then I think it's probably time to move on to the um, next topic we wanted to talk about, which was, of course, Israel, or Israel beginning their preparations to attack an Iranian um, nuclear facility again, which that reporting was done by... Let me just pull the article up here real quick. Um... Uh, that reporting was done by the Times of Israel, um, reporting that um, uh, uh, a, uh, I believe the IDF uh, chief of staff um, ordered budgetary funds to be set aside for preparing, including drilling and practicing for a long-range strike on um, an Iranian nuclear site. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Channel 12 News also reported that he said... Um, or had ordered that the Air Force train intensely in simulating a strike on Iran's nuclear program. Um, and so this is a development that's happened over the last few days, um, and, you know, definitely comes as, a, not a surprise per se, but definitely an evolution um, in the way uh, both sides have uh, stepped up the rhetoric. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, like I said, it's, it's nothing particularly new is it you know like israel does say every so often that you know they are their plans to strike um you know get around this nuclear infrastructure and everyone knows that you know if, if things do eventually if, if iran does get too close to you know get getting a, a working weapon or at least you know anyone near getting a working weapon then israel's obviously going to step in and take measures but it is always interesting when israel flat out says it says that they're, they're training for it or they're preparing for it or whatever um i mean i i personally think it's mean it's probably not going to happen soon because obviously you know by saying that obviously iran is going to go on edge and you know beef up the defenses or whatever um but again in the same way that i'm <laughs> like i'm convinced that there'll be a confrontation between china and the us before 2025 i'm the, the same time frame for me i think you know for a confrontation between israel and iran mm. um I don't know what you guys think. I don't know if you think less or more, or or about the same. But that that for me, I think it's definitely this this end of the decade. I reckon we'll see, we'll see some kind of action from Israel. Yeah. Well, Hi everyone. <laughs> uh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. We we I think we've left you out for too long here. 
I, I think one of the privileges of being in the Middle East is that we have so much of our own crap to deal with that, that we follow other things less closely, like China. But Iran has, has certainly been a favorite topic. And uh, there's certainly been a gradual escalation in Israeli preparations in, in the last few months. I think Israel is increasingly realizing that the Americans and the Biden administration are not eager, to put it mildly, to, to put any kind of uh, military pressure on Iran. Uh, there's sort of growing panic in Israel, and we're seeing all kinds of moves. You mentioned the IDF chief ordering the Air Force to resume active preparations for a long-range strike, which is a big deal. Uh, the Israeli government just approved a budget of about $1.5 billion earmarked for preparing for a strike, uh, acquiring dedicated munitions, uh, investing in more uh, planes, all sorts of planes, uh, investing in intelligence collection via satellites. So there are all kinds of things going on. And uh, the big question, of course, the billion dollar question, billion and a half dollar question is when will Israel strike, if at all? And how close is Israel to being ready? And I'd like to make a distinction here because people are usually talking about striking uh, Iran's nuclear program, which is, of course, of course, the focus of preparations. But we're increasingly seeing indications that Israel is actually preparing for a much wider strike, not only on nuclear uh, facilities, but on a range of strategic Iranian facilities. And the logic for Israel is very simple. I mean, if you're going to go and strike Iran, that's obviously going to trigger a major missile assault on Israel from all sorts of directions. So if you're going to do that, you might as well uh, cause as much damage to Iran as you can. So an Israeli general actually said it a few weeks ago, a Major General Tal Kalman, who is a very important figure because he's in charge of, of the Iran front in the Israeli army. And he specifically said that Israel is preparing for an all-out strike uh, or campaign against Iran. And that, of course, uh, has implications for planning and for the timeline. So I think if I have to sum everything up, I think that if Israel needed to strike Iran tomorrow because of some kinds of major developments, Israel can probably carry out a reasonably effective strike on Iran's nuclear facilities. But that's not the ideal situation for Israel. I think Israel is, is preparing something bigger and then takes longer in terms of planning, uh, getting the right munitions, uh, collecting the intelligence. So I would agree that uh, as far as it depends on Israel, a strike is probably not going to happen soon. But the more you move into next year and possibly 2023, and of course, depending on Iran's actions, uh, the risk is going gonna, is gonna to grow and the chances of Israel striking is going to grow. Hmm. Uh, and what, what kind of munitions specifically are they sort of stockpiling at the moment? Uh, it's hard to know because they're not really <laughs> releasing any details. Uh, uh, they, they've been asking the U.S. for, for the, the serious uh, bunker busters, but the U.S. has been reluctant mm. to, to provide Israel with those kinds of weapons. But, but they're investing in, in precision weapons and in sort of heavier, heavier bombs. And another thing Israel is doing is that it's upgrading the F-35 squadrons. Um, Israel, I think, is the only country outside of the U.S. that actually purchased, that was allowed to purchase a, a trial 
plane where they can test out all sort of things and and Israel is upgrading the f-35 with all sorts of uh, again secret systems we're not giving too much detail uh, communications intelligence collections and weapon systems one thing we know is that they found a way to put more bombs in the belly of the aircraft uh, small bombs but still they allow the aircraft to to strike more targets and of course the importance of, of putting it in the belly is that it's not gonna undermine the stealth operations of the of the aircraft so so they're doing that but a lot of this stuff is of course very secret and, and when the IDF does release any information, it's usually a bit general. So, so we, it's a little difficult to know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, it's it's sort of expected of the IDF to be, you know, of course, they've always sort of been cagey on the information they release. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't put it past the IDF to have the ability to conduct a wide-ranging strike, um, especially now that, you know, less Gulf countries would be actively opposed to it, which certainly gives them a bit more political cover at this point. Um, but it, it's just something to to sort of, I guess, as Iran continues to sort of pull back from any potential nuclear agreement um, and the U.S. gets um, closer and closer to basically just okaying a strike at some point. Of, of course, the Israelis have final authority over anything like that and have their own, you know, prerogative to do anything. Um, but I believe there is some level of um, sort of need for political approval coming from the U.S. in order to conduct such a strike at this point. Um, so, you know, it, it's something we could definitely see in the near future. I was, of course, watching the entire press conference between um, Blinken, uh, Yair Lapid, and the uh, foreign minister of the UAE, who I forget the name of right now. Um, but it seemed like the general language being passed around at that meeting was one where the US was sort of switching over to the idea that negotiations weren't going to be the end of this. Um, and that some sort of response would be warranted i believe uh the quote that i probably should uh go for here is um uh when blinken not lapid said um oh he he said that the u.s and israel were considering options outside of negotiations in order to prevent iran from acquiring nuclear weapons um uh, and then uh quote we are prepared to turn to other options if iran doesn't change course um and then lapid Pid continued to say uh, other options are also on the table if Iran doesn't change course. They both it very much seem to be on a, a similar track there, and um, the UAE didn't seem to object in any way, shape, or form um, to that. They just the UAE mainly talked about uh, reconciliation with the Palestinians. So there definitely seems to be some sort of implicit uh, uh, approval, I guess, at this point for any potential strike that we may see in the future. Uh, I think you're right that for Israel, American support is very, very important. It's going to make many things much easier. Uh, I think that Israel and the U.S. see the threat relatively in similar terms, but I think the Israeli concern is that the U.S. is very, very slow to take actual steps to even indicate that they're willing to do something serious on the military front. And there was an interesting report a few weeks ago, I don't remember where, uh, citing an Israeli official saying that 
while the Americans are, are starting to lose patience with Iran, Israel is concerned that, that the Americans don't really have a plan B. And apparently the Israelis ask the Americans for a massive show of force. They ask the Americans for some kind of a huge drill in the Gulf or something of that sort. And the Americans refused. So while the US might slowly start to sort of adopt Israel's position, it still looks like the, their timelines are, and the seriousness with which they, they take the threat is still different. And for I mean, understandable reasons, I mean, for Israel, this is obviously a very, very serious threat. And for the Americans, uh, they can live with it, at least for now. So I think there is really a growing concern in Israel that the Americans are, are just not there in terms of the military option. And, and for Israel, ideally, of course, they would prefer the international community dealt with this issue and if, if the Americans dealt with this issue. But increasingly, there's the understanding that it's, it's not happening just yet. So I think the big question will be once the Iranians uh, make even more progress towards a bomb, which, which is unclear if they will do that anytime soon. But if they do, it would be very interesting to see if the Americans are willing to take a more forceful approach. Because if they're not, uh, Israel is going to find itself in a very difficult predicament. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting to see because the current political situation, at least inside the U.S., with um, Blinken as Secretary of State, um, his policy is sort of um, interesting, I, I, I would say. Um, he obviously uh, uh, has a certain level, uh, I mean, he is Jewish, um, but he has also crafted um, or was responsible for crafting um the Obama administration's policy on um, the Iranian nuclear program, which focused more on um, negotiation before anything. So I think this, you know, there's this certain level of um, confusion in trying to read what his actual policy is at the end of the day. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's very interesting to see sort of where he's trying to move um, and, and what he's trying to do into the near future. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think. Go ahead. Sorry. That's all right. Um, I think we've all kind of pointed out at various points as well that that the Biden administration has been somewhat slow in dealing with a lot of these threats. Um, I mean, a anything that isn't Asia. Yeah, a, a prime example. We 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 we've kind of seen it with Afghanistan a few months ago. Um, I know you and I, uh, technical, were were waxing lyrical about that on on multiple occasions. Um, and, and sort of really expressing our disdain and our sort of just disappointment in, in the way in which the US was dealing with things there. And I think, uh, as as you say, uh, Israel Radar, we're, we're seeing that again now. The US is very much taking a sort of back seat and isn't really all that fussed now about that kind of issue. It is very much focused on China, albeit perhaps not as vocal about it as it was during the Trump administration. Um, well, what the, the actual ramifications of what, you know, Biden has said with China are definitely more, I would say, politically flammable than, than what Trump had said. Um, well, yeah, but you're talking about when he said that the US would like, absolutely defend Taiwan in the last couple of days. We have a commitment like... to defend Taiwan. Yeah, that, that was certainly... Um, yeah, definitely a bit of a change. 
and and ask that came quite quickly as well after the um the last thing that China were pissed off about, which was the uh, was it uh, U.S. special forces on Taiwan training uh training like the Taiwan military, um and they had you know what they, I, I think some Chinese media you know referred to it as an invasion and and stuff like that. So for for Biden to come out so quickly after you know China was you know not even over the last thing the U.S. did that that annoyed them, um. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. You know, like you know, like Trump did like to you know say he was tough on China, um, but I don't. I mean, I, I I try to forget as much of his presidency as I can, but I, I don't really remember um, him making such uh, like provocative statements. I don't know about you guys. I could, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Um, but you know, he I don't remember him you know like outwardly saying that he would you know defend Taiwan or anything along those lines. Yeah. I mean, basically, even when it comes to the, you know, Israeli um, Iranian situation um, outside of of rhetoric, um, I, I don't believe there have been major changes in between the administrations on actual policy decisions. Um, I, I, I would would you agree with that? Have have there have there been any marked changes in the last year um, sort of in Israel? I would agree with you that on the strategic change, I think both Trump and Biden are very hesitant or were very hesitant about using a force against Iran's nuclear program. So on the strategic level, both of them, I think, were more focused on China. But I think that on the more tactical level, there was a difference because under Trump, the Americans were more willing to use limited force and of course, the, the most obvious example is the Soleimani assassination. And those are the kinds of moves that I think Biden is unwilling to make, or at least so far has been unwilling to make. And I think that when you, you take those kinds of moves together with the sanctions that, that Trump imposed on Iran, that amounted to a more aggressive line that even though it fell short maybe of what Israel wanted, it still kept Iran guessing and it still kept, it still kept them worried and uh, they were a bit more reserved in the, in the way they exercised their power in the Middle East. And I think what has changed is that the Biden administration is clearly even less eager to, to use any force or, or they're using very, very limited force and that's emboldened, emboldening Iran. And I think in Israel we've noticed the difference because after Biden took office, we had all sorts of relatively minor incidents from Hezbollah and of course Hamas and the war in Gaza, where those forces uh, were more willing to take action or to test Israel in ways that, that weren't happening during the Trump administration. So there is some difference, but I agree with you that on the strategic level, the Americans are still very hesitant. So in that respect, not much has changed yeah so and i think obviously as as you said there there definitely were reactions um to the perceived american change in backing um which at, at the end of the day i i don't think i guess sort of changed the way the situation was on the strategic level like you said as well um so it you know it there's there's a certain level of of what we're expecting to see in the near future and i mean i don't think any of us and i i don't want to speak for the group here i don't think any of us think that iran will go back to a nuclear deal at this point no 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 i don't think so absolutely not
yeah so I, I i think we can i think we can be somewhat um <laughs> conclusive on on something like that but it, it's just it, it's something i guess we we see moving into the future of you know trying to manage this threat like it's you know 2010 i guess um so it's it's just it's something interesting to uh, uh, of course deal with obviously interesting probably isn't the right word for that because you know it is a threat um it it, it is a real threat both to israel um and to other neighboring countries um who have to deal with some of the um non-nuclear threats from iran like uh you know uh, hezbollah and you know irgc uh backed groups sort of you know running around wild um and i think that might actually be a great time to pivot to what happened in lebanon um uh last week or i think now just over a week ago um so uh lebanon um had a bit of a an incident um where uh, uh two not both weren't iranian grip back group but but hezbollah and the amal militant group uh held a march um in order to get the person investigating the beirut port explosion removed um, they believe that he is unfairly targeting Hezbollah members in the Lebanese government in order to drive them out. Um, so they wanted to protest that. They're claiming that he's American-backed and that he, you know, is, is you know, serving as a pawn for America. Um, as that was happening, they received, they were basically walking down the street that served as the demarcation line between um uh, Christian neighborhoods and Muslim neighborhoods during the last civil war. Um, and they were shot at by, by what is presumed to be Christian militias. Um, no one's entirely sure of that right now, but um, they returned fire um, and just poured fire into this Christian neighborhood, um, basically just targeting everything and anything. Um, and eventually the Lebanese army had to sort of move in and separate the two sides. Um, by force uh so we're basically seeing right now lebanon is very insecure from the utility standpoint and they they really there isn't a lot of governmental control at this point over lebanon we're seeing groups like hezbollah um get more and more sort of bold i have talked with some people and they're sort of the i guess group understanding that hezbollah doesn't really want to run um Iran or doesn't want to run Lebanon because no one can really run Lebanon right now and no one wants to. Um, and so they, they mainly want to serve as antagonists um, to the current government. So it's definitely a situation that if it destabilizes, it definitely impacts a lot of security in the region. No, definitely. And mm -hmm. like that, that incident when... I mean, on the videos, and I, you know, I can't remember. I can't remember what the exact death toll was. I believe it was like twelve or thirteen, from what I remember. Um, I remember which... seeing six, but I I didn't follow right. the death toll later on. I know a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, it might wounded. be it might be lower. I might be like overestimating what what it was. But when when you look at the videos, and I know uh, I'm sure most of us here were watching the live streams at the time. Um, the amount just the sheer volume of gunfire that was on the streets it's a miracle that the death toll was as low as it was um and as a, and i remember reading one particularly um i mean the situation wasn't funny but the tweet itself was in which there was like some journalist which stopped and asked some it was either hezbollah or or, or mile fighters you know they asked him what they were shooting at and they were like i don't know 
walls, buildings. You know, they, they didn't have a clue who was shooting, who they were shooting at, or if, if they were even being shot back at. I think a lot of it was um, for the cameras. Almost, they were just kind of firing RPGs at a building they thought they were people in, and they were just dumping, you know, like magazine after magazine of just like AK fire into just random buildings. Like I, I believe. Um, I seen some tweets going around of you know like a couple of uh, Hezbollah accounts were name dropping people who they claimed to be the shooters. They see, and I believe there was maybe four or five people from the same family they claimed to be the ones that opened fire on them. Um, and you know, considering this, you know, call it a firefight, I I I don't know if I ever seen any kind of fire coming back at the uh, Hezbollah. I know there was that one guy with the RPG that got killed. Um, who was he was a he was a veteran, wasn't he? He would he of like the Syrian conflict. Mm. Um, he to come back to Lebanon and get killed over some, you know, like a, like a, like a skirmish in in Beirut. Um, but it, it was just an absolute miracle that the death toll was you know, six, seven, you know, between six and twelve. I can't remember exactly what it was, which is you know tragic in itself. But if you just look at the videos, it's it's it nothing. It could have been so much worse. Um, yeah, it, it, it definitely indicates how volatile the situation right is right now in Lebanon. Of course, that remains a security issue for other nations around Lebanon. Of course, Syria and Israel are both um, very cagey about what is happening in Lebanon right now. You know, there is a saying in the region about Lebanon that, that if you understand Lebanon or if you think you understand Lebanon, you're doing something wrong. So I'm, I'm, not, going, I'm, not, I'm not going to pretend that they fully understand what's going on in Lebanon, but there are certainly growing indications that, that uh, Hezbollah is, is starting to be challenged or that there's growing displeasure with Hezbollah in some circles. And we had the, the recent incidents, of course, and before that we had... Uh, a few weeks ago, there was rocket fire from South Lebanon, from Hezbollah to Israel, and, and some local villagers actually tried to, to stop it, some Druze villagers. So, so we're seeing some growing displeasure, but, but Hezbollah is obviously the, the strongest party in Lebanon, and nobody's really capable of fully challenging them. And, and I don't think anybody really wants a war, a civil war in Lebanon right now. And the big question for Israel is where where is the situation growing from here? And I agree with the assessment that, that Hezbollah probably doesn't want to rule Lebanon or take full control of Lebanon because that, that comes with all sorts of prices. And the question is whether Hezbollah is going to maybe take a step back and, and be less aggressive to allow more international support and, and assistance. Or the other possibility that Israeli intelligence experts are worried about is that Hezbollah might try to target Israel as a way of uh, diverting attention away from what's going on in Lebanon. Now, according to the IDF psychological profile of uh, Nasrallah, or Hezbollah chief Nasrallah, which was done a few, I think it was updated a few months ago, they believe that Nasrallah is still very much uh, traumatized by, by the Lebanon war, the Israel-Lebanon war from 2006. And that since then, uh, Israeli intelligence analysts have been able to identify uh, that Nasrallah has become a more uh, sort of paranoid and and more depressed, really, mm. and far less willing to, to use force against Israel. And it's been about uh, 15, 16 years since then. 
So I think the assessment in Israel is still that, that Hezbollah is a bit, uh, a bit hesitant to do something like that. But in, in the last year, there are indications that there's growing willingness by Nasrallah to maybe do something, even if limited, and that he might be willing to take greater risks in terms of initiating military action against Israel. So Israel is definitely watching closely what's going on. And, and again, we're, we're not sure where it's going because with Lebanon, it's really hard to, to be sure. Yeah, and I, I think both... Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say the danger with, with him kind of, being, like I said, being maybe traumatized of... Uh, who do we just lose? Someone. Someone. Them. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the kind of danger of him being maybe traumatized is, you know, if he's not going to want to come across as maybe seen as weak, because if he's seen as weak at any point, then obviously that's, you know, an opportunity for Israel, it's an opportunity for those that oppose him, whether that's internally in Hezbollah or, you know, external groups in Lebanon. So I suppose if he feels like he's being backed into a corner, so to speak, um, that's when I guess it gets, it gets dangerous. And I suppose you can kind of lash out at that point. Yeah, and I think no one really, I mean, Israel learned during the 1980s and Syria also learned during a similar period of time that no one really wants to be responsible for Lebanon because Lebanon is just... The peace in Lebanon was very hard-earned and seeing something like that collapse would be horrifying um, just after the, you know years and years and years of just horrifying fighting um that went on um in the civil war just i, I don't think anyone wants to see a repeat of that um and and it's just it, it's something that definitely serves as as a risk and something that no one wants to i mean to just it, it would be horrifying um and it's just it's something that i guess all parties are trying to control right now um and it's why i openly um, even though uh, Syria is definitely trying to gain influence in Lebanon, their um, new importation of, of fuel oil into Lebanon has certainly been a, um, a an asset, being able to at least provide the Lebanese people with about six hours of power a day. Um, that's certainly better than it was even before the last major blackout, which brought people down to effectively no power every day. Just to make a final point maybe about Lebanon, if the situation wasn't messy enough, uh, one big issue there is uh, that Hezbollah is engaged in a massive military buildup that Israel is following very closely. And the big concern is the, the high-precision project or the high-precision missiles that, that Hezbollah is trying to acquire. And, and what they've been doing so far is smuggling in kits, technological kits that, that enable them to convert sort of more primitive rockets into high-precision missiles. And that's a huge concern for Israel. And, and the red line for Israel is supposedly uh, 500 or so precision rockets would be an unacceptable risk. So that's something that Israel is monitoring very closely. And, and the possibility of a preemptive strike is definitely a real possibility next year. So even if Hezbollah doesn't uh, initiate anything, you might see eventually Israel actually initiating something, which which is another be another major development, of course, in the region. It's quite interesting that you said about the um, the kits to kind of transform the kind of unguided rockets into the guided rockets. And I guess the only comparison I can think of is almost like a budget JDAM, right? That, that's what it kind of sounds like. 
Yeah, it's something like yeah, it's uh, something that you can smuggle in in a suitcase and you can just fit it uh, on the rocket. Hezbollah is also trying to actually produce a more serious uh, high precision missiles, but they've suffered some setbacks. I think last year there was a drone strike that nobody took responsibility for, but you can guess who did it. And a drone exploded in Beirut and supposedly destroyed some kind of equipment that was critical. Oh, I remember that. I think it was like a media office or something. That was something they claimed. They claimed it was like their PR office or something along those lines. I don't know if you're talking about uh, the Gaza thing, which is which is something. No, no, it was in Beirut. I'm sure. Didn't Hezbollah said like the building got hit? It was just like offices or something along those lines. Is that Uh, the same incident you're talking about? You, you might be right. I don't, I don't remember the, the excuse that Hezbollah uh, gave, but, but according to Israeli intelligence, uh, there was some kind of, of uh, very unique equipment that was destroyed and, and Hezbollah apparently hasn't been able to replace it. So they've been going with the kits for now, but they're still trying to, to industrialize the production. And if they can do that, that that's going to be a major, major issue. All right. And I think we should probably now move on to... Um... Of course, you know, what we sort of have to talk about, <laughs> Carrier Strike Group 21, um, recent developments um, there as it continues to uh, transit back, actually, now. Um, it's sort of been a while since we've talked about that. I think um, that's something that you wanted to talk about, John. Yeah, I mean, I was hoping Jordan would uh, would help me out with this, but he's obviously dropped out. Um, yeah, so the, the UK Carrier Strike Group has obviously uh, begun its journey home now after uh, taking part in a number of exercises in uh, sort of the area of Japan and, and, and Southeast Asia. Um, there's been some issues again, as as, as you know, we, we've, we've had before. Um, there was an exercise that took place the other day um, where one of the Royal Navy's destroyers was supposed to have taken part with... Uh, half a dozen other warships from various nations, uh, Singapore, Australia, and so on. Um, and unfortunately, due to some sort of uh, mechanical fault, we don't know exactly what yet, but the uh, the, the destroyer had to drop out of that, um, meaning that there was no British representation in that little task group for that exercise. Um, now, we've, we, we've been assured by various sources in... Singapore and Australia that the the issue wasn't uh, with the engines obviously type 45 destroyers have famously had a number of major issues with the engines we've already seen it um, earlier this year with the carrier strike group when uh, one of the ships of, uh, of that class had to uh, return to Italy for a major uh, so sort of fix um, to do with the engines um, so we don't really know what's happened there but obviously that has meant that the carrier has sort of proceeded um, a little bit of the distance home now again without one of its sort of primary air defence destroyers. Um, That coupled with the fact that the the US destroyer that has been escorting the group ever since it left the UK um, has now obviously departed and and is on its way home um, to the US across the Pacific. so far as we're aware, the carrier strike group is still on schedule to uh, arrive back in the UK in time for Christmas. Um, obviously, Christmas is now just two months away exactly, um, and you know um, they've obviously still got to 
journey back through the Mediterranean and then back up through uh, the North Atlantic uh, to Portsmouth um, for the journey home. Yeah, and I know we've now been talking about Carrier Strike Group for... Um, when did it leave? Um, sorry, just trying to check my update ago. here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I... I uh, you know what? I'm going to double check this because I want to be right. Um, let me just... Uh, let me check here real quick. Um, it was in the summer, right? I feel like it must have been in the summer. Uh, good lord. Um, HMS Queen Elizabeth departed on the 1st of March, 2021. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for workups. Uh, the entire fleet did not leave until the... 22nd of May. Um, okay. So yeah, that's that's definitely been uh, uh, certainly uh, interesting to see sort of um, it's been gone for very very long at this point. Um, a, a fairly long deployment. Um, and you know, as, as it continues to make progress um, back home, of course we saw the very large joint exercise um, uh, in the South China Sea, which definitely... Um, ruffled some Chinese feathers, which um, I think we'll be touching on next. But um, yeah, it, it's definitely uh, uh, given a um, uh, given Britain this new asset that actually has been proven to be operational now. Um, it, it's able to conduct airstrikes far away from home. Of course, we saw that um, striking ISIS in Syria. Mm. Um and, you know, it's this asset that can also, you know, be rushed to um, East Asia if something were to happen. And of course, as um, uh, uh, HMS Prince of Wales also um, continues to uh, come online and, and be integrated into the fleet, that's another asset that can join um, any potential issues. Um, and we've also seen the UK um, stationing offshore patrol vessels um, into the... Uh, into the Pacific at this point, which sort of is just a continuation of that um that continuing presence uh in in the Pacific. And um you know we'll 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 see where that goes in the near future, but it's definitely a um I, I would consider it a resounding success. I, I you guys would consider the same, right? Yeah. And and what what yeah, just quickly on the topic as well, um there's a an article I saw, I think it was yesterday, um regarding the original transit out through the Mediterranean into the Indian Ocean and beyond, um, and the revelation that uh, the UK's F-35s flying from the carrier actually um, carried out a number of intercepts of Russian aircraft that were probing near the carrier. Um, now, I, I'm, I seem to recall that at some point there was a brief news story earlier this year where there was talk that Russian aircraft had been sort of monitoring the carrier's progress through the Mediterranean. Um, but this article yesterday um, seemed to suggest that there was, had been at least 16 different uh, intercepts um, of Russian aircraft that were getting a little too close to the carrier for comfort. Um, and I think that's interesting because obviously that's not something that we hear about of, often. Um, no doubt the, the, the US carriers uh, probably deal with similar um, issues, uh, uh, you know, on a regular basis uh, as they transit through the Mediterranean and elsewhere. Um, but I, I think for me it was interesting as well because 
at one point Russia was very adamant that the new UK carriers were sitting ducks and um, nothing more than a bit of target practice for them. Um, and clearly, clearly the F-35s are being used to uh, sort of warn the Russians: No, you're not just going to sort of wander around near us as as you as you want to. We are we are very much aware of your presence, and um, and, and we have the means to deter you. I consider that that statement sort of um, entertaining. At least the one that you know, Carrier Strike Group Twenty One would be a uh, sitting duck. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it has uh, a couple of Type forty five destroyers and and an early, and and a Burke class um, sitting in the formation, which is definitely um, uh, just a just a tiny bit of a funny uh, uh, assumption that it it would be a sitting duck. No, mo- no more so than I a U.S. carrier strike group, which you know I consider somewhat entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that doesn't even take into account like how difficult it is to even sink a carrier in the first place i mean wasn't it the um the us like a decommissioned carrier they tried to sink and they just couldn't do it and i think in the end they had to like put people on board to like just put explosives like strategic locations so then it eventually sank yeah. um yeah it, it's, i remember it's they hard. took them, like days just hitting it with everything they had and they just <laughs> wouldn't sink yeah it's definitely hard to sink a carrier um, kind of reminds me of uh, Iran's mock-up carrier that they had at one point, and how they spent absolute ages throwing all sorts of weapons at it, and then eventually they sank it by accident, didn't they? Yeah, it just kind of toppled over, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think we should probably move on to um, sort of everything that's been happening in Taiwan and the East China Sea, while of course Carrier Strike Group Twenty One has been um, sailing in the area. Um, so I think we should probably just touch on this briefly, but China has obviously been ramping up pressure on Taiwan um, over the past few weeks. It, it culminated around um, uh, the Republic of China's Independence Day, um, which is different than the, um, than the uh, uh, Communist China's Independence Day, the People's Republic. Um, but China was, you know, putting pressure on Taiwan as, um, uh, of course, uh, a very large combined uh, carrier strike force made up of a Japanese aircraft carrier. Let's just call it what it is. Um, a, a Japanese aircraft carrier, two U.S. carriers, and of course, Carrier Strike Group 21 were operating as an integrated unit um, in the South China Sea. So that that's definitely something that angered China a lot. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see China make these uh, bold and, you know, I, I guess threatening activities um, towards uh, Taiwan. Uh, you know, at some point they are going to start sailing larger forces through the uh, Strait of Taiwan. Um, so it, it's just it's something that we we will continue to see in the future, um, and I, I fully expect it to continue to be an issue. No, no, and I know um, I know the photos when you came out recently, or at least we've seen them recently. I, I assume they were recent of um china moving the like tanks and like armor personnel carriers inside civilian ferries or like civilian uh cargo ships i don't know if you guys saw that mm. um because i know like one of the main things people say is you know like china doesn't have the um the capabilities to launch like an amphibious invasion of taiwan um but the fact that they now um like 
releasing these images themselves of you know like I, I the one I saw was just like a like a a, a ferry, mm. and it was just rammed you know full of like um, armored vehicles, um, and I mean I don't know how much of a how I know you know war crimes are always <laughs> difficult, but I don't know um, you know if if that would be tech, not a war crime as such maybe but it's, it's got to be a breach of some convention surely using or if I, they hide them at least. I don't um, think it is, is it entirely. I, I, I don't believe so. Don't quote me on that. But um, from what I've seen, it's not um, it, it's not any sort of offense. Um, but uh, but again, I mean, it's, you know, an interesting use of the assets they have on hand. Um, because it's not like, you know, they would be sailing those ferries alone around the... Uh, around uh, towards Taiwan, they would obviously be a part of a, you know, uh, of some sort of amphibious landing force. But it's, you know, it's it's a good way to pump up their potential amphibious landing craft numbers because, of course, these are roll-on, roll-off vessels. The U.S. has similar vessels um, that are utilized to, um, that are both utilized in civilian roles and in military roles. Um, so that's, that's definitely uh, just an asset that a lot of countries use. Um, but moving into the future, of course, China has made it clear they intend to invade Taiwan. They will acquire the assets to do so. And, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's no secret that they, you know, they, they're planning on it, is it? Um, yeah. And and again, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm fully expecting some kind of, if not a full invasion attempt, some kind of limited clash around the island in the next. I mean, I, I'd say before 2025. Um, and you know, the whole issue... Oh, I, I sorry, was going to say, I've, I've kind of um, put it out there that my view is we will see a clash over Taiwan in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, I, I know there's a, a lot of people who disagree with me on that, a lot of people who sort of mm-hmm. are, are more towards the, the latter end of, of the 2025 um, sort of time frame. But I, I genuinely think we are going to see them make a move a lot sooner than later. Um, like like you've mentioned, the the rhetoric has ramped up significantly um, in the last few months. In particular, um, I, I remember when 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 we were busy discussing Afghanistan, um, you had the likes of the Global Times coming out with some very interesting comments, um, sort of about Afghanistan, but also very very squarely aimed at Taiwan um, and the U.S. sort of view of Taiwan um, so I, I think I think we will probably see it sooner rather than later um, and I think it will take a lot of the world by surprise when it does happen yeah I mean I my current assessment of the situation and you know I, I might look stupid in the future I might not I may look like I'm smart but you know it's it's an educated guess because of course no one knows what China's going to do um, but while there are ongoing supply chain shortages and sort of chaos in, um, you know, the current market and China is dealing with coal shortages, I don't think they want to start a war until that gets worked out. And I don't see that getting worked out until probably 2024. So I, I think that sort of drives sort of where the potential start date would be further into the future. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense. Um, and I mean, no one but China knows when they're going to do it. They'll do it when the conditions are perfect for them, isn't it? They're not going to do it any time before or after that. Um, 
So I'm like I said, you know, the conditions aren't perfect right now, so I don't expect it anytime soon. But and I suppose the, the big part as well is just how close any kind of U.S. kind of response force could be to be the Thailand. Like I, I don't know how long it would take for any kind of sizable U.S. force to kind of get to Taiwan from wherever they'd be based at. You know, cause if China well, there's can... there's a there's a fairly large permanent U.S. deployment in both Japan and Guam and, of course, um, the first island chain as well. Um, so you'll, you'd probably be looking at immediately at least one carrier and a, a marine um, uh, amphibious ready group in the region at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, and I, and I know I've talked about this um, on Twitter a couple of times. That, like, you know, like I think the issue for the U.S. and Taiwan is... The same issue that the the Baltic South and NATO in the um, the fear was always that Russia would invade and occupy so quickly that NATO wouldn't be able to even respond to kind of keep them out or keep them from you know occupying. And at that point, you know, do you risk a larger a larger war over you know like the Baltics or in this case Taiwan? Yeah, which I mean, as, I think as much as they would, would, you know, they wouldn't really. They would just kind of let Russia have it. And that, that was the assumption, I guess, until uh, Biden went out and said that U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when it comes to military issues, there it may say Congress has final say over these things. But in, in reality, the, the president is the one who, who makes the decision on stuff like that. And Congress mostly follows. Um, I, I, doesn't, I think doesn't the president have like the authority for like to go to war for like 48 hours or something like that before ah uh, shoot sorry i'm free it is da, 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 i believe it's 90 days don't quote oh, me on that much longer than 48 hours in that case <laughs> yeah but then then congress has to make a decision and you know congress saying no at that point would just they they wouldn't um and, and so you see this situation basically where um the u.s would defend taiwan the final question i guess in that issue is um uh, is whether or not China believes they can win. I I know as much as the Baltics wish they were an island, they're not. Um, And so the the situation is sort of different just because, you know, Russia basically has to drive, um, you know, a few hours down the road and they're, you know, in the capital of most Baltic (laughs) countries. Um, The situation is a bit different with... um, with the Republic of China and Taiwan. It's it's a bit harder to invade. you would see an invasion coming. There's there's no way an invasion could be a surprise. Um, it would most likely come under the cover of an exercise, um, but th- there's legitimately no way you wouldn't see an invasion coming from at least a week away. There's just... It's impossible with the amount of material China would have to amass, the ships they would have to put in place. It just... At, at, it, it, it's something that you can't hide. Yeah, um... And on the same kind of uh, area of, of Taiwan and China and, you know, capabilities, um, again, I've recently seen on Twitter, and I know it's been a thing that's been known about for, when I had a look, at least, you know, 2012, 2013, um, but this fleet of um, J6 UAVs they have, which i seen, you know, recently got spotted. They, it's said near Taiwan, that could mean anything. I didn't look up exactly where it was, but I think it was like 50 or 60 of these um UAVs of like you know the J6, which are copies of oh, I've forgotten the name of it, Mig something. Um, someone help me out. Someone help me out. Wait, thirty. Wait, 20, I was going to say twenty nine, but I don't know if that's you right. You mean SU twenty sevens? 
No, no, no. The, the J6. Um, is it uh, old? Is it old? Um, yeah, no, the J6 is a... Um, MiG-19. It's an SU-20. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the, the J6. Yeah, the MiG-19. Sorry, I keep getting that yeah. mixed up with the other ones. Because yeah, it's a J sixteen, right? It's like a more newer one. Yeah, the J sixteen is the SU twenty seven copy. The J six is the really old one. Yeah, so it's it, they've basically got a fleet of like fifty or sixty um, supersonic UAVs. Which, in the case of any kind of conflict with Taiwan, I think in the same way um, Azerbaijan used the again names this get AN twenty two is it the Antonov? Um, it was basically just um. Uh, yeah, and no, decoy drones. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but, you know, basically, basically uh, how yeah. the US uses the the mauled standoff platform um, to you know bait uh, air defense platforms into firing. I assume you could also turn them into basically just really big suicide drones. Yeah, which is a terrifying image. Yeah, because they they'd be much larger than any other unmanned platform. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's it. Like, obviously, Taiwan, um, they, they've got a, you know, a sizable air force, especially for the size of the country they are, um, and a sizable kind of like air defense, uh, you know, amount of air defense systems as well. Um, but again, nothing compared to, you know, a country like China, which, you know, they, if they can afford to, to throw literally 50 or 60 kind of old fighters into like these to pay air defense or to you know, like, strike strategic targets or whatever, or, or just use them, or, you know, just try to use them as, like, ground attack aircraft for as long as until they get shot down. You know, it's 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 definitely something which I can see happening. Um, and I, I suppose in the, in the, you know, talk about the invasion of Taiwan, it's not so much an if trying to get onto the island, it's more of a when, really, isn't it? Unless the U.S. can... Depending on the kind of resistance the U.S. put up, which is debatable... Um, you know, I I remember reading an article a few months back that was um, saying that like maybe the U.S. wouldn't use any kind of strategic missiles against China in because they were afraid that China would misinterpret them as nuclear missiles. Or I can't remember exactly what the uh, the article was was arguing, but it would be interesting. To, you know, with the U.S. saying they've got a commitment to defend Taiwan, like how far does that go? Really, you know, will they just I mean, I don't know. But what, what what do you guys think? Like, what do what do you think that means in terms of you know defending Taiwan? Does that mean they go, do you think they'll strike mainland China, or will they literally just sit off and maybe enforce a fly zone? Or I'm, I'm I think dubious to be fair that the U.S. would actually defend Taiwan personally. I'm the same. I'm the same. Especially in light of the way in which they withdrew from Afghanistan mm. and, and how disorganised that all was to start with. Um, I'm inclined to think that what they actually mean to say is they'd be prepared to try and deter China, whether that would mean they park up four or five carrier strike groups sort of around Taiwan and sort of say you're not coming near um you know at, at that point that kind of leaves it to china as to how determined they are to take back taiwan but um mm -hmm. yeah I, I i don't personally think that the us would be throwing you know tens of thousands of troops into trying to defend taiwan i don't think they'd have the time frankly to to mobilize enough of a force um 
Because, I mean, as you say, we, we, they've got troops in Japan, they've got troops in South Korea and Guam and so on, but they don't really have the numbers to sort of be able I mean, to here's... majorly from there, particularly because if they were to suddenly move loads of troops from those locations to Taiwan, China could just turn around and, and be like, well, okay, we'll, we'll go and attack Guam instead. I mean, here's the thing. So... Any invasion by Taiwan would take time. Like that that's a that's a known. It would it would take a, a fairly long amount of time to actually, you know, to perform something like that. Um I I think the question is um I, the the US would have time to stage assets, especially air assets in the region. Um if China were to attempt uh, a crossing or an amphibious invasion. Um, and so Taiwan, Taiwan has enough of a force where they would be able to defend themselves for a bit, but then would rely on secondary U.S. assistance. So the U.S. does have some time to establish um, a, a, a certain number of forces in the region. Now, now we do know that. Um, I think the real question is uh, whether or not um, the U.S. would have the political will to do it. That's certainly a question. Um, so it, obviously that that's, again, a, a huge question um, of whether or not the, the U.S. would be politically willing to do it. But, um, I mean, they could. Like, you, you definitely can game plan it that the U.S. can do it because it would just be an incredibly hard task for China to actually perform. Um, but I, I think right now that political will exists. I think the problem for the, the Americans, I agree that they're very reluctant to, to use force in Taiwan, but the problem for them is, it, is if they don't use force, and especially after Afghanistan, then it, it puts a huge question mark uh, on the American willingness to ever use force, because if they're not using force uh, against Iran and they're unwilling to use force against China, then it puts a big question mark on their, on their willingness to, to use military power. And I think that would be a big problem. So I would agree with the estimate that they would try uh, to use force again pre prematurely or, or to preempt or to deter uh, a Chinese attack uh, with some ma massive show of force. And, and of course, the big question, I think, is what China wants to do. And uh, the big question is whether the, the growing aggressiveness on the Chinese side is more tactical or, or strategic because uh, China has been, of course, reluctant to use full military power. And if you read all those books about the Chinese grand plan to, to whatever, to take over the world and to dethrone the U.S., that's supposed to happen in 2040 or 2050. So when we're talking about uh, a possible Chinese invasion in, in, in a year or even in two years, if they do that, that would signal that, that China feels very uh, confident about their own abilities and very dismissive about uh, the American determination to to stand up for Taiwan. So that's a really huge dilemma for, for the Americans. And it, it also, the big thing is just like the public's appetite for war over Taiwan. Like, so, like something like Israel, I think there would be quite high public support um, in the US for like, you know, a war defending Israel. But I, I think Taiwan, I think there would be public support for it, but significantly less. Um, and I, and I can see that kind of 
drop in even more when you know inevitably the first casualties start coming through um and i, and I think the you know public support in china especially and obviously with china being like an authoritarian i can't say it um authoritarian country um you know they, they'll be doing a much better job kind of keeping a lid on any kind of like major losses or you know like their propaganda machine will be up and running and the fact that you know like this invasion will be seen as kind of like a war of liberation um Actually, like you know, public support for war being a lot higher in China than it would so, be in the U.S. I, I I will say, um, I of course, whenever someone says something, I have to look at the polling because that's you know that that's how I measure things. Um, <laughs> but as as of the opinion has been changing pretty quickly, actually, in the past few years. Um. Uh, for the first time in history, actually, half of America uh, favors defending Taiwan if China invades. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So 69 nice percent of Americans believe <laughs> that Taiwan should be recognized as an independent country. 65% um, support its inclusion in international organizations like uh, 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 the UN. And 57% uh, favor signing a U.S.-Taiwan free trade agreement, which is probably the highest support of any free trade agreement by, like, far. Um, Fifty-three percent support uh, the United States signing a former uh, formal alliance with Taiwan, um, and uh, plurality uh, support uh, explicitly committing to defend Taiwan if China invades. Fifty-two um, percent favor using U.S. troops to defend if China were to invade the island. Um, so that's that's the highest percentage ever, and that's actually you know using U.S. troops. Um, it's uh uh it's definitely uh uh you know it's improving um and uh, you know there's there's this perceived aggressiveness that the US doesn't really like um you know US citizens have this real hate of what they believe are bullies um in any region mm -hmm. um so it, it's something that if China were to be a clear aggressor and, you know, it's pretty hard to see them as anything other than that, um, you'd see wide U.S. public support on an issue like that. Yeah, no, no, I, that, you know, I am actually surprised that the polling was that high. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect it at all. Um, it's not just high. It's moved like 10 points in the last yeah, like 15 years towards. That's crazy. And, and yeah. I guess that is generally, you know, maybe, you know, in the last 10 15 years between russia and china like russia hasn't been as much of an you know an antagonist for a while so now china's kind of come along and picked up you know picked up a mantle of that um but again oh, okay, so the polling's high at the moment i suppose but again i think it, it would be interesting to see you know if there was again conflict like how long it would have to go on for until like the u.s public really started losing support the longer we the... fight, the more the U.S. public supports that. We're notoriously really? hard. We're, we're notoriously <laughs> hard-headed, and once there's a perceived investment, like everything goes out the window. Logic does. Um, but especially the US has never winning. had a well, yeah, like exactly. Like the U.S. hasn't well since I don't know. I'm trying to think. Afghanistan when. losing a war. Are yeah, we talking when... about losing or winning a war? I'm trying to think of like you know the U.S. is when they fought um, an equivalent you know when the enemy has been like an equivalent power you know they haven't had that since 1941. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking you know um, 
I mean, it, it's hard to for the U.S. It's hard for the Korean U.S. to fight. Nick. Maybe but that was kind of they're kind of on par on par, I guess, at that point. Yeah, for um, troops in theater. I mean, there there just there aren't that many countries. Like the the issue is the U.S. is such a powerful country that when talking about whether or not it can win a war, you don't talk about its resources or you know its manpower or its um. Just it, it's you know it's technological advancements. You talk about it's the will of the people to fight a war. That that's that's how powerful the U.S. is. That like whether or not it can actually win a war is out of the question. It's whether or not the people want to win the war. Mm-hmm. And there, there there just aren't there aren't that many quote there aren't that many countries like that. No, that's that's true. And I suppose the big thing about Taiwan as well is like how do you defend Taiwan? without the conflict spreading beyond Taiwan is, I guess, a big issue for the U.S. Because, um, you know, you know, you have to worry, if China starts to feel like the, you know, the U.S. involvement in Taiwan is kind of pushing them back, then I suppose there's a real danger that, um, that they look elsewhere. I can't remember, someone definitely mentioned that earlier. Someone mentioned maybe they'd look at, like, Guam or something like that. I can't remember which one of you it was. Well, you'd probably um, see long-range strikes on something like Guam. Yeah, but then, again, then obviously there's, you know, a real danger of... If China hits Guam, does, where does the U.S. go from there, you know? And it's, well, that's considered... That's hitting U.S. territory. Yeah, well, exactly. So then, if... You know, the U.S. starts off just by kind of enforcing. I know it's very difficult to enforce a no-fly zone when it's so close to mainland China. But you know, something along those lines, or just you know, act in a purely defensive, um, takes a purely defensive stance. If China hits Guam, then U.S. hits mainland China. That's a very slippery slope, suddenly. You know, and I suppose that's what no one really wants. Yeah, and of course, I've I've said I think several times I've tweeted out what I think. A war would look like it. It would be very ugly, um, no matter what. It it would not be a fun experience for anyone, um, and it's something I don't think any of us are rooting for. Oh, if well, anything, well. we see it as a a potential outcome, but but not something that any of us want to see. No, um, no one wants it, but I think we're all kind of resigned to the fact that it's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> that's. that's... I think China is sort of coming to this point where they're seeing pressure on their population as their population ages quickly um, into this state where without immigration, which they sort of can't do because their population is just too high, um, without massive immigration to offset their rapidly aging population, they will see a contraction in their economy as people retire. Um, Because the, the worst thing someone can do to an economy is retire. Like just just straight up dying is better, um, because they're they're not sort of taking from you know the economic output, um, and so as China is starting to see this happen, of course the the one child policy irrevocably damaged um, their sort of population. Um, you're going to see them be more bombastic and try to get things done that they couldn't otherwise do, um, while they still have this population advantage. No, that's, yeah, that's an excellent point as well. Um, All right, John's yelling at us because apparently we've been going <laughs> for like an hour and a half now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I think, I think we're setting a new record here with a uh, episode length. We're gonna call it. We're gonna call it a special episode because we because <laughs> we can't because our time management skill is so bad. Um, 
you know, I think John, you should just sort of lead us out here, summarize the news, so so we can all go, uh, so you guys can go sleep. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's not that late yet. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, so sort of beyond what we've already discussed this evening, um, there's obviously been the the North and South Korea have both been testing ballistic missiles. Um, I think we kind of sort of mentioned that briefly uh, at the end of uh, last episode as well. Um, it's, f it's fair to say there's not been a huge amount of international reaction from those tests, um, but South Korea entering the ballistic missile sort of class is uh, certainly an interesting development and, and one that kind of raises a lot of question marks for the diplomatic uh, situation uh, in the peninsula. Um, Beyond that, there's not an awful lot of other sort of major news stories that have, have caught our attention. Um, France is sending a uh, marine Rafale uh, to India uh, at some point, I believe, this week um, for them to trial the aircraft on their uh, aircraft carrier. Um, India is, of course, still looking at purchasing a naval version of the uh, Rafale jet um, for their carrier. Um, after struggling with their indigenous designs for a carrier-based uh, fast jet for some time now. Um, yeah, and that, that's pretty much it. So, um, thank you very much everyone for listening. Um, hopefully our next episode will follow in a uh, slightly more usual uh, schedule. Um, but over the next couple of months, particularly in the run-up to Christmas. I'm interrupting John because we sort of have uh, poll results back from our followers on um, uh, opinions on uh, defending Taiwan. And I, I think, you know, bef before we end the episode, I, I have to cover this, of course. Um, as, as of, you know, about 10, no, five minutes into the poll, we have about 75% voting yes, 16.2% voting no, and 8.6% uh, voting maybe. Yes, yeah, so it's an overwhelming yes, isn't it, that people would support. Well, um, our followers are, you know, largely of the same different. mindset, I, I, I would <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, it's different to kind of, yeah, difficult. I mean, we're in a, you know, we're in a little echo chamber of people who are, of the, yeah, like you said, the same mindset. But, I mean, even if it's, like, like um, the technical said, you know, like current poll in the US is around 50%. You said it was like 69, nice, again, um, percent for but you know in favor of it it's still i think can be a, a yes in terms of support at the moment um which is again i was genuinely surprised by um all right i'll continue letting it, you uh lead us yeah. out there <laughs> yeah so um like i say hopefully the uh, next episode will follow in 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 sort of a a regular schedule pattern um so roughly about 2 weeks from now um, over the next couple of months, so obviously in the run-up to Christmas, um, episodes will sort of occur at random intervals. Um, we're going to try and slot a few more guests in um, in the run-up to the end of the year, and, and, and obviously season two will continue into uh, early next year. Um, at some point, we're going to reach out to you guys, our listeners, um, for what you'd like to see um, in sort of 2022 from us. Um, but yeah. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, don't forget that you can catch us on YouTube, on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, uh, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms, um, as well as obviously downloading 
the podcast for free from uh, our rss.com uh, site. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this week's episode, uh, which has ended up being a bit of a bumper episode um, with lots to talk about. But uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much to Israel Radar for joining us. Um, and uh, Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on, mate. And uh, with that, we will uh, wish you farewell. 